We are uh, currently exploring the series Sex and Gender in the Image of God. Last week, we looked at male and female in its connection to this idea of the image of God in Genesis 1.27. And we spiraled it out a little bit and talked about mother and father. And so we've only left one, one archetype off the table. We've only left one piece of what we saw in our sexuality off the table. You may remember as we talked through sexuality, uh, we looked at the fact that from a Christian perspective, um, we view sexuality as being between embodied beings and so that means as male and female, we talked about it as being uh, the social reality of sex, which involves procreation. So there's mother and father. Um, and so the only one we haven't talked about is this relational aspect of, uh, of our sexuality, this uh, unitive aspect that we see in marriage, and that brings us to husband and wife. And so we're going to begin tonight um, in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, and while you're turning there, as we have done every, every week, uh, we will be doing a Q&A after the service. There is a text-in service with a number on the screen. If you have questions, um, you can text them in as soon as you have them, um, and then I'll do my best to answer them um, after the series. Once again, I think that's especially important tonight um, because what we're going to seek to do um, is primarily to point out two things, okay? Um, one, that the roles for husbands and wives are directly tied up in this idea of image of God. They're, um, they're not rooted here in Ephesians chapter 5 in culture. They're not even rooted in, um, in ability or any of these things. They're rooted in Genesis chapter 2, like we've seen consistently week to week. Uh, and then second... Um, my hope is to clarify what this passage means by helping us to understand what it does not mean. Um, you'll see as we read this passage, it has a tendency uh, to be controversial. Um, but I think we stand at a disadvantage in our time, not because of the controversy itself, but because we as a culture uh, aren't very good in the way that we handle words the way that we deal with language. I think some of this is unintentional. It's just the drift um, that words over time don't always maintain their um, preciseness. Um, but I also think that there's a tendency to use words in a way that is intentionally muddy um, for whatever ends you're trying to pursue. And so when I use a word like submission, or most of the time tonight I'll use the word subjection, uh, or when I use words like headship or like authority, it's worth taking some time to un unpack exactly what those words do and do not mean. I would be very surprised if you didn't finish tonight going, yeah, but what does that look like? Okay, And that's, I think, a very important question, and it's one that we'll deal with in the Q&A, but if, if this isn't what Scripture is calling husbands and wives to, then that question becomes irrelevant. And so I'd much rather root the reality in this is what the Bible is saying and leave the now what for another time than try and go directly to application without having a firm foundation, okay? And so like we did last week, tonight we'll be more focused on laying a basement, a subfloor, than it will be building 
the building. Um, nonetheless, I think uh, there are some things we can learn tonight. What I'd like to do is read this passage through. Um, uh, in fact, I want to read a little bit more than where we're going to focus. The, the um, exhortations, the commands given to husbands and wives are from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. I want to squeeze back a little bit. Um, and the reason is because Paul is doing something intentional and it's helpful for us to catch the context. Okay, and so I actually want to pick up in verse 18. I want to read through the end of the chapter and then I want to pray. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would give us clarity tonight um, before we can seek to um, respond to your word, before we can obey it, we have to understand it. And so I ask that you would help us with that tonight. Um, I pray as well that you would show us uh, what this particular relationship of husband and wife uh, teaches us when it operates as a window for who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just in case you didn't pick it up, the reason why I wanted to start back in verse um, 18 is because Paul is talking about the spirit-filled life. He's talking about this new life that God gives in Jesus Christ and how it plays out in our lives. And so, as he says, be filled with the Spirit, verses 19 on, tell us what that life looks like. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The things that he lists here are manifestations of the Spirit-filled life. They're an overflow of the new life we have in Jesus Christ, and that includes the last one, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, and so that's the context of what he's about to do. Now, what follows is not just a conversation on husbands and wives. It's actually broader known as a household code. 
okay? And actually, household codes aren't just a Bible phenomenon, although you will also find one if you turn over to Colossians, another letter by the Apostle Paul. But in the ancient Roman world, it was a relatively common form of ethic, uh, ethical discourse, okay? And the reason is because the Roman world was broken up into the oikos, the household. And most households in the Roman world were generally the same. You had Uh, a husband and wife, you had children, you had servants, all living under one roof, you had extended family, and so it was common in some point, point in an ethical discourse to apply what you were saying to these areas directly in the household. In fact, the pattern we find, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, is a consistent one for all the household codes we've ever found, okay? But the content here is actually pretty different. For example, just, just off the start, uh, Paul actually addresses wives, children, and slaves directly here. That's unique to the biblical household codes. Usually the address is only to the, uh, the top part of that relationship and the bottom part is neglected and ignored. And as we'll see, even the way that he speaks to the top position in all three of these relationships within the household, he speaks differently um, than the common sense wisdom of his time. Okay? Now, um, <coughs> the, the second thing that I think is worth noting here is that Paul, as he's doing this, has two things in mind. So on one hand, he's giving exhortations to how wives should treat husbands and husbands should treat wives. And actually, that content is pretty simple. It can be summed up simply that wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. But especially in the husband part, he's constantly connecting it with another relationship, the relationship between Jesus and his church. In fact, it's pretty clear that that's the one that is dominating in Paul's mind. And so a good deal of the material in verses 25 through the end of the chapter aren't actually perfect illustrations of how the marriage relationship works. So for example, uh, look at what he says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, look at verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Is that something husbands uh, get wives for? Is that talking merely and totally about Jesus? Just about Jesus. So he makes the comparison, but he keeps bleeding into this other place and talking primarily about Jesus. In fact, notice how he continues in verse 27. So that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We might be able to draw a comparison to a husband's aspirations for his wife, but that's clearly secondary in Paul's mind in this section. In fact, the place where it gets most profound is at the end of the chapter, he finally roots everything he's talking about in Genesis chapter 2, like we've seen every single week as we've looked at these topics on sexuality and gender. But as soon as he's done that, he says something very significant. Read it again with me in verse 32. This mystery is profound, And I'm saying that it, being Genesis chapter 2 that he's just quoted, it refers to Christ and the church. Effectively, what he says here, if I could paraphrase, is, hey, I know this is bigger than you would expect, but this is a really, this statement that I've just quoted from Genesis isn't merely about marriage, it's actually about the relationship between Jesus and his church. 
That's why he calls it a mystery. Now to clarify here, the, the Greek word mysterion that is translated here as mystery is not like an enigma or a riddle. It's, it's not something that you can't figure out or ponder. It has to do with something that was secret and then been revealed. Okay, And so he's saying, until recently, we didn't understand the significance of Genesis 2 being pointing to the Messiah. But now that the Messiah has come, now that the Messiah has described who he is, now that he's announced himself as the bridegroom, Paul says, I'll never read Genesis chapter 2 the same. Okay? That's what he means when he says it's a mystery. And so notice, even in verse 33, he has to get back to his exhortation. So he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. At this point, it's become a secondary matter for him. Okay? Now, why does he compare these two? What is the relationship between a marriage and the church and Jesus, a husband's relationship with his wife and Jesus' relationship with the church. I don't know if you caught it, but it has to do with this metaphor of the body. Okay? That's the foundation. That's the correlation between the two things. In fact, the reason why Paul makes such a big deal about this particular um, correlation between these two concepts here is because the relationship between Jesus and his body is the primary message of the book of Ephesians. Okay? So, for example, all the way back in chapter 1, notice what he says at the end of his prayer in verse 22. I'm going to change the pronouns here so we understand who we're talking about. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And if you keep reading through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, you'll see this reiteration of the relationship between Jesus as head and the church as the body. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, it points out that the church is a body and not only are we all individually connected to Jesus' head, but inherently because of that phenomenon connected to one another. And so we're like one body but many parts. We have unique gifts. We have unique parts to play in the body of Christ, but we work together so that the, quote, whole body builds itself up in love, okay? And so he's connecting the dots here because that's the primary reason he's written Ephesians is to help the Ephesians understand what their connection with Jesus has changed about their relationship with God and with one another. And the primary metaphor is this metaphor of body and head. Okay. Now, why is this a significant metaphor for the husband-wife relationship? As Paul points out here, it has to do with marriage as it was designed in the beginning. He quotes from Genesis 2, and if you're not familiar with the context, let me just remind you of what's happened here. God creates Adam. He says it's not good that man should be alone. He uh, puts Adam to sleep, creates a bride, a woman, Eve, out of his side, brings her to the man, and as he awakes, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was made out of man. And then, according to Jesus, in Matthew 19, God speaks, presiding over this newfound relationship and says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so their relationship, the restoration of the relationship of Adam and the woman who was created out of his side becomes paradigmatic for the marriage relationship to come. 
And that one flesh idea is where we get the idea of one body, okay? Now, once we understand all of that, we get the comparison between head and body and head and body. And so, on that basis, he speaks of two concepts. Um, The head, which involves authority, and the body, which is called to submission, okay? Now, I think, in fact, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. Anytime I read this passage, I always think of the same scene from a particular movie. So much so that I almost, almost played it for you tonight, but to be honest, I'm just not that type of preacher. And so, the, the thing that almost got me to do so, though, is I'm, I'm assuming that many of you have not seen this film. But nonetheless, I think you'll get the point. There's a film, it's an indie film um, called Snowpiercer. And it's an odd one. It's a post-apocalyptic dystopian class war movie. Maybe those are only movies that I watch. Uh, but, but effectively, what's happened that sets up the plot of this movie is there's been a nuclear fallout and there's now a nuclear winter and all that remains of humanity is living on a nuclear-powered train that was protected from the environment and runs on a complete cycle around the globe 24-7, okay? And so what happens is this microcosm of human community is all that's left. And over the course of time, it breaks into two significant different groups. The the back-of-the-train freeloaders, people who snuck on, people who paid for the lowest level of ticket, and the the front-of-the-train first-classers, okay? And uh, the back-of-the-train people are mistreated. They live in abject poverty. Um, They're fed this, you know, just super base food, just enough to keep them alive. They're the primary servants on the train. And at the front of the train, because it's a um, self-sustaining ecology, uh, is living like kings. And so they're growing fish and eating sushi, and it's just completely worlds apart. So... It's in this world that the speaker, who is this woman played by Tilda Swinton, uh, comes back to address the back half of the train, uh, and while she's speaking, somebody throws a shoe at her, okay, uh, interrupts her speech. And the way that uh, this, this act of rebellion uh, is, is punished is that they actually stick this guy's arm out the train And it's so cold outside that it eventually freezes and he loses his arm. It's kind of intense. But while they're waiting for this to happen, she gives another speech. And it's a fascinating speech, partially just because Tilda Swinton is such an incredibly uh, capable actress. Um, But basically, she holds up this shoe and says, do you know what this shoe is? She says, this shoe is chaos. This shoe is death. This shoe is size 10 disorder. And she starts to explain the relationships on the train and the significance of the order because the order keeps everybody alive. And so she explains that the front of the train is made up of the head and the bottom of the train is made up of the foot and you wouldn't put a shoe on your head because that's not where it goes. And so she exhorts them all to keep their place and know their place for the sake of all human beings life left on this train. Not only that, but she actually roots it in religious concepts. As you can imagine, this microcosm of humanity has to explain the, the metaphysical realities of human life, have to give meaning to, meaning to life, and so all of their religious sentimentality now revolves around the sacred engine. 
this thing that drives the train and keeps them alive, that they work in tandem with. And so she roots this whole order, although it was established by the tickets in the beginning, in the sacred order of the sacred engine. Okay. I'll be honest, every time I read this passage, that's what I think of, that scene. Because I don't think it's very easy for us to read a passage like this without assuming that it's arbitrary, that it's rooted in religious to maintain, religion to maintain the status quo, and that it is inherently unjust and only a perpetuation of abuse and injustice. Okay? Now, I think that describes the vocabulary problem that we mentioned earlier. And so what I'd like to do is walk through these ideas of authority, and once again, I'm going to stick with the word subjection, because the only use we have of submission in the modern world is Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's not what we're talking about. So at least subjection is a little less tainted of a term, okay? Um, but let's talk about authority first. When it says here that she should submit to her, uh, to her husband because the husband is the head, it implies authority. But we live in anti-authoritarian times, okay? We don't really like authority as a concept. We don't trust authority. We're fully and completely acquainted with the fact that if you are given a position of authority, you also have power. And that power can be used for your advantage and used to the disadvantage of those you have power over. Okay? But there's a few things that we need to keep in mind. And most of these concepts I'm going to share with you, if you're interested, come from Thomas Molnar's book, Authority and Its Enemies. But I think it's relatively helpful to revisit this idea of authority. And so here's a few things to keep in mind. First off, authority is an inherent part of community. What it means to be one in any sense, together in any sense, to come together for any sort of cause involves the concept of authority. Okay? So as long as you're doing something on your own, in your own place, with only your own ability, authority is an irrelevant content, uh, con concept. But as soon as you involve other people towards the same goal or with the same purpose, then authority comes in. Okay? It's an inescapable part of life. Now, granted, there may be just forms of authority and unjust forms of authority, but society, community, um, organizations, uh, uh, businesses, all of these things have to have some way of moving forward together. And that's always bound up in the identity of, or in the, um, in the, the reality of authority. Now, here's the problem. We're so anti-authority, we sometimes value autonomy so much that we think that that concept is somehow escapable. Okay? We remove ourselves from it and go, well, yes, that's true, but there really is a way to, to deal away with that and still do things moving forward. Here's my primary concern about that. First, I don't actually think that it's true. I, this isn't me saying that your, your ideas are idealistic and aren't achievable because people are going to be people. I mean that, that we misunderstand what authority is and how often it plays a good part of our life. Okay? So let me give you an example of those who try to escape it. And I'm not trying to offend you here, but consider with me for a second the conspiracy theorist. Okay? Effectively, conspiracy theories are all about authority. Because the danger that they're trying to avoid is being deceived by those in power who are somehow creating this false idea so that they can take advantage of the masses, right? Now, here's the problem. 
Conspiracy theories always involve information and interpretation. In fact, you have to get the information from somewhere. Okay? The only difference is that the information for the status quo comes from visible organizations with titles in their names and organizations that hold them accountable, and yours come from an Angel Fire website, right? An anonymous source on the internet. That's not removing the system of authority, and every conspiracy theorist I've ever met assumes that they have protected themselves from misinformation because they've come to these conclusions on their own. But they haven't gotten rid of the authority that's involved in communication. They've just gotten, uh, gotten rid of its visibility. They've pushed it into the shadows. They've removed its accountability. Okay? I have the similar concern that a lot of the ways we try and go about avoiding authority don't actually avoid it at all. They just make it so it continues in the shadows and perpetuate the possibility of abuse and advantage. So here's other things that we need to keep in mind with authority. First, all authority, except for God himself, is limited by design. Okay? And usually that limitation uh, is, is associated with the purpose of authority. Take a teacher. When you're a child and you're enrolled in a school, that teacher has an authority position in your life. Okay. And not just in the sense that if you, uh, you know, forget to spit out your gum, there's disciplinary measures, but also in the sense that for you to learn, you have to listen to them and be tested for what they've told you and these types of things. Okay? In other words, the authority that goes with a school or with a teacher is built around the purpose of education. Okay? Now, we for, for, uh, totally have to be aware of the fact um, Uh, that it's better to create and cultivate learners than just deposit information. But the honest truth is there's no Einstein's theory of relativity if Einstein didn't have a thorough understanding of Newtonian physics. Okay, paradigm shifts come from understanding the paradigm and then questioning it, not from never understanding the paradigm and going out about your way. Authority is a part of how education works, okay? But consider the limits of a teacher's authority in your life. Primarily, they only have authority over you in the classroom as opposed to, for example, your bedroom. They only have authority over you for the duration of your education and not beyond that. They only have authority over you specifically in the content uh, of the education and the areas that serve the education process, like what happens in the classroom or even in the lunchroom or back in the schoolyard, right? Um, But they don't have authority in the areas beyond that. They can't tell you what to do with your hobbies or how to spend your time or who to vote for or these types of things. That's true of all authorities. Let's take another example. Consider parents. Parents have an appropriate authority over children towards what end? The raising of children to mature independent adults. Okay? And so there's a reason why we don't think it's oppressive when a parent encourages or even commands their four-year-old to eat their vegetables. Because we know that they're developing healthy habits that will sustain them into adult life. But once again, there's limitations in place. Just because you're a parent doesn't give you authority over my children, right? There's a limitation there. We generally recognize that there's a difference in the way authority operates for a parent over a 5-year-old and a 55-year-old, okay? These limitations are built into the design. 
Consider government, which is a relatively high level of authority. There are still inherent limitations. What is the purpose of, of government authority? For the public society to exist healthily, right? To work together at the societal level for value, which means that the government has no authority over your private life. And although you can't necessarily escape government, you can move out of a government's sphere of influence. Okay? In fact, we even recognize there's a good deal of things the government cannot do because they do not have authority. In this country, we have the Bill of Rights. Okay? Limitation is always part of authority. And as soon as we read a relationship like this, the tendency is to assume we're talking about full-on, 100% unlimited authority, which is just not a thing, okay? unless we're talking about the sovereign God. Not only... Is all authority limited and limited specifically by its purpose, meaning we can't understand how authority operates until we understand what it's for. But also, all authorities are integrated and hold one another accountable. Now, I know these systems can break down, but we take for granted how often they work. So, for example, parents don't have absolute authority over their children, and we can call CPS and get the government involved, okay? A public school system is responsible to the government, and parents have a part to play in that. In fact, the government has a vested interest in parents raising good children because they also can raise good citizens. Okay, so there's an interconnectedness to these things. All of that we need to keep in mind. Okay. Like I said, my concern is oftentimes we read this and we don't recognize those things. But let's deal with the big question we've left on the table. Okay, then, so what is the purpose of this relationship, of this community known as the marriage? What is the purpose here that defines the shape of authority so we know what we say when we say that the husband is the head? Now, I think actually the best way to understand that is to talk about subjection, okay? Because they go hand in hand. In fact, I'll point out to you that nowhere in this passage does Paul say to the man, you should be the head. He says the husband is the head, and then he speaks and addresses that. But primarily, who does he talk about headship with? The wife. He says, wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head. Okay? And so these two always go together. So let's talk about subjection. Okay? What I want to point out this morning is, is that order, any type of order that has, um, has a head and a body or a higher position and a lower position, in any of those circumstances... Also, we have to recognize that not all subjection is created equal, that it's different. Okay, now here I'm relying on um, some observations made by a guy named Stephen Clark. Now, if you really wanted to read the best book that's ever been written on a Christian understanding of gender, Man and Woman in Christ by Stephen Clark is it. But buckle up, it's 650 pages. And he's so thorough, you're going to talk about everything, not just the Bible and sociology. You're going to talk about how we go about interpreting the Bible. You're going to talk about the, the history of change in development of the world from a uh, traditional society to a technological society. It is so thorough, the approach that he takes. It's also very helpful. And one of the places I find to be most helpful is when he's helping us understand subjection in the marriage relationship. And this is what he points out. When we talk about subjection, we can analyze different categories in two different ways. First, the origin of that relationship, and second, the operation of that relationship. 
Okay? Now, in the origin of the relationship, he, ta- he talks about three different types. Um, the first, uh, darn it, I was hoping to do this from memory. I got really close, but it's, it's a long list. Um, right, right, right. So the first way it differs from or, uh, origin, he calls domination or coercive subordination. In other words, it's caused against the will of the subordinate. Now, we naturally assume that's clearly unjust, but hold on. He gives at least one positive example of where this plays out in modern life. He says, when we commit somebody uh, into a mental institution, it's often against their will, but that doesn't mean it's not for their good. Okay? But to be clear, the subjection we're talking about in the marriage relationship is not that wives are wards of their husband. Okay? put in this place for their own good against their wills. That's not what we're talking about. The second one he talks about is a mercenary subordination. Okay, mercenary in the sense that the reason the organization exists is for differing benefits for each side. Okay, you guys actually know a lot about this one because it plays out in your place of business. When you work for an employer or when you take on an employee, you make a contract that says, you will do this work for me, for my company, and I will pay you for you, okay? That's mercenary because the only thing that brings them together is the exchange of benefits. But that's not what we're talking about in marriage, okay? The origin of the relationship is not, uh, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, It's not an exchange or a contract of these things. Like we talked about, it's a covenant. It's more significant than that. And so that leads to the third category that he mentions, which is voluntary. Okay, voluntary subordination. And that's the one that the Bible envisions. And it's actually pretty easy to see that this is the case because what Paul doesn't say is, husbands, put your wife in their place. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. He engages them at their will and calls them to voluntarily subject themselves to the relationship. Okay? Now, do you understand why it's important that we clear those other things out and talk about this one? But that's not enough. We need to move on to the second category. He says that we can also understand subjection by its operation. And he talks once again about three different categories. The first one that he talks about in its operation is oppressive subordination. Okay? Oppressive subordination is like a conqueror who comes in and takes captives, okay? It is solely for the benefit of the top at the cost of the lower, okay? But that is not what we're envisioning in the marriage relationship. We're not talking about a man who clubs a wife like a caveman and drags her home. We're not talking about captives of war. We're talking about something different. The second one in terms of its operation that he mentions is care subordination. And so the first one focuses on only good for the top. The second one focuses on primarily good for the bottom. And so the example he points to in care subordination is the relationship between parents and children. Okay? It's not that parents don't benefit from that relationship. There's plenty of fringe benefits to having a family. But the general purpose of the relationship is for the sake of the lesser, of the lower, of the child, right? Because they're the one with all the needs, okay? Like a youth pastor told me at a retreat one time that I've never forgotten, babies suck. That's what they do. They just take and take and take and take and take and take, right? 
Uh, and that means that primarily, especially at the baby age, what do parents do? They give, and they give, and they give, and they give, okay? And the returns are immaterial, okay? But that relationship is a good one and exists primarily for care. Now, there is a sense where we can see that in any good marriage and probably in the mutual sense. There are times, for example, when a spouse is sick, and so care subordination becomes part of the paradigm. But that's not the inherent heartbeat of this relationship. And so that brings it to his last one, which he calls unity subjection. Okay? Unity subjection means that two people have both willingly come together with the purpose of unity, either just that being the final purpose or with a greater purpose. Okay? Now, why do I say that marriage is a unity subordination? Because it's a one flesh relationship. The whole point is to make two people one. And that purpose, the fact that it is voluntary and the fact that it is unity subordination, shapes our understanding of how this relationship plays out. Okay? Now, with all of that being said, I think it brings clarity to what we're talking about here, okay? Because the purpose of the relationship is for the relationship to grow in closeness, for the relationship to really operate together, to go the same way. Remember what we talked about if you were here when we talked about relational sexuality and covenant? The marriage relationship as the Bible views it is a relationship of sharing of life, all aspects of life, full, uh, naked, and unashamed honesty, and the joining of two lives so that you share the same destiny, so that you operate in the same ways, so that you live the same life, okay? And so the way that that's envisioned in the Bible is with this idea of one flesh or with this idea of being a body, and that unity shapes the authority that we're talking about here. Now, there's a second question we need to ask, and it's a pretty simple one. Okay, so, so there's a body relationship, and maybe you'll just give me, you'll just grant me that uh, in the best sense of the word, it can't be a two-headed body, okay? That the unity that envisions here, if, it, if the relationship is head and body, then there's a sense to that. Okay? That there has to be somebody who's primarily responsible, who's primarily leader. Why the husband? Okay. Now let me deal with something that I didn't address earlier that just comes to this. Just in case you're saying, but can't it be fully egalitarian? Okay. Aside from the fact that two people uh, voting is problematic. I mean, just, just in process. I want to just remind you that democracy is totally capable of unjust an unjust operation of power. Tyranny of the majority is something we understand. Okay. If you don't, watch the newest episode of the Orville. They actually do a really good job of laying this concept on the table. I don't know if you've seen that new sci-fi show yet. Once again, my taste, not yours. Um, but nonetheless, we, we have to recognize that democracy isn't inherently just. In fact, Plato, all the way back in the Republic, said it's the least just form of government. Because that's like asking all people to make their own shoes. Okay. Not everybody should get a vote, Plato would say. Okay. 
Now, whether you agree with him or not, once again, just recognize the fact that the majority is not always right. And as the history of our own country proves, the majority can use their power as majority to take advantage of the minority. Okay? We're fully capable of that. But if we set that aside and we talk about this unity, why husband the head and not the wife? And one of the reasons we ask that question that I think just needs to come up to the surface is because the general answer we want is one of merit. We want the best person for the job. Okay? In fact, that's what makes this so offensive because we tend to assume that this is saying something about the equality of men and women in capability. And so at some times... Cultures like ours have communicated that women are indecisive and so shouldn't lead, or men are natural-born leaders, or that men are just more rational and less emotional than women, so they should make the decisions, all of these things. Lay that all aside, okay? That's not really what we're talking about. But it is worth saying, does Paul just choose the husband to be the head? As I mentioned here, he doesn't say, husbands be the head, he just assumes that that's the case. He has a clear distinction here between the role of husband and the role of wife. Is this merely cultural? Now, it's possible if you look at Roman culture, if you look at Jewish culture, you will find there is a standardization here. It is worth mentioning that even Margaret Mead, the sociologist who tried to um, relativize the expressions of gender cross-culturally, okay, um, she was very popular, At the end of her career, she frustratingly proclaimed that never once has there been a society known living now or through archaeology where it was the women who led and the men who followed. So it's hard to say this is merely cultural when it's cross-cultural to, you know, at least 99.9%, okay? We we don't know of any civilization that lived differently, okay? But that aside... Is it possible here that Paul is just ensnared in his own culture and that the right and proper thing to do as Christians is to grow beyond where Paul is backwards here? Okay. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that Paul and Jesus both proved to be tremendously countercultural, and not just broadly so, but also on issues directly of sex and gender. So, for example, here in the household codes. Not only does Paul address the women like they have actual responsibility as Christians in their faith, okay, that they're not just along for the ride of their husbands, but also, as we'll see, the way that he addresses husbands goes against the grain of the general thinking of these concepts. In other places, take this one, for example. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is talking about men who will make good pastors, And one of the things he says is, let him who desires the office of pastor be a man of one woman. If you're familiar with the passage, it says husband of one wife in the English, but man and husband, wife and woman in the Greek are the same words. What he literally says in the passage is a single woman man. And it's a little bit strange when we read it because we're like, what is the alternative? A a two-woman man? A three-woman man? Is it just polygamy that he's concerned about? Those things existed in Paul's time, but they weren't very common. It's not the type of thing you would bring up on a job description, okay? So maybe he's saying that pastors need to be married, but do you understand why that's a little ironic? Because Paul here is a leader in the church and a single man is saying, oh, you can't, you can't be a leader in the church unless you're married, right? That doesn't make sense. So what in the world could he be saying? 
Intriguingly, intriguingly, we do know of another common phrase that reminds us of Paul's phrase, also in an ethical context, and that's the concept of univera, okay? Una meaning one, and vera meaning man, okay? And univera was an old Roman concept that was upheld as being the ideal for women who were Roman citizens, that they would be a one-man woman, and here's what it looked like. Okay. It meant that they had no sexual relationships prior to their marriage to their husband. It meant that they were faithful the duration of their marriage with their husband. And it meant that if their husband died, they did not remarry. And so widows of only one wife were, or of only one husband were upheld as being the prime example of female virtue. Now, as you can imagine, this was a total double standard. Men were expected to fool around before they got married. They were expected to have multiple sexual relationships over the duration of their marriage. And they were required by law to remarry if their wife died. Okay. So consider with me the fact that Paul, speaking of leaders in the church, takes this concept and turns it on its head. And says, if you're going to make a good leader in the church, you need to be instead of univera, unigyna, okay? Now, univera is a Latin term, and Paul's words for one-woman man are Greek because he's dealing with a Greek, on, a con, uh, Greek culture linguistically, but socially he's dealing with a Roman culture, okay? We see the same thing in Jesus. Jesus is constantly breaking supposed gender barriers, enrolling uh, disciples who are women, Remember the story, he, uh, the story where he's talking with Mary and Martha? And Martha's working in the kitchen. And she comes out and says, why are you letting Mary sit at your feet like the men? She should be in the kitchen with me. Okay. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the right and proper place. We see women disciples in the church, and that's profoundly unique for all the religions except for the ones that were women run, the mystery religions. And so it's easy to just label Paul a misogynist and move on until you really look at the data broadly. Okay? In fact, historians, even non-Christian ones, tell us that in the early church, the first hundred years, women flocked to Christianity because of the freedom they found in its doors. Okay? The second reason why I would say we, we should be reluctant to just toss this out as being enculturated is that Paul's reason is not cultural. In fact, it's not all of those wince reasons that we're afraid that the Bible would say that women are inferior to men or that men are more rational or, or these types of things. Those existed in Paul's day as well, but that's not where he goes. He goes to Genesis chapter 2. He goes to the design of the relationship in particular. In fact, it's helpful to go back and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and ask this question. In the relationship between Adam and Eve, not merely as the first man and first woman, but also as the first husband and the first wife, do we see any difference in role? Okay. Now, multiple times in the New Testament, Paul points back here to talk about gender relationships, and these are the types of things he says. Because Adam was formed first and then the woman. Because Eve was made out of Adam, not Adam out of Eve. And because... The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. Now, all those statements on their own can sound a little bit sketchy, especially that last one. What do you mean that women were made for man? 
okay? All that it means when you go back to the story is that man in and of himself was incomplete, so God created him a helper. And remember that that word there, ezer, is one of a strong helper. It's primarily used of deliverance in a militaristic sense, okay? Not, not a servant, not a slave, okay? But a suitable helper, a compatible partner to deal with the deficiency of the fact that Adam was alone, okay? Not only that, But I think it's really important that we read the story rightly. And here's what we see. We see that when they're set in the garden, Adam and Eve are given one command, right? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Any other tree in the garden you can eat of, but this one you're not to eat of, okay? And that's clearly what the story in chapter 2 and chapter 3 especially revolves around, right? So the serpent comes, talks to Eve about the command. She breaks the command. She gives to her husband. He breaks the command. God says, have you broken the command? And then there's consequences because they've broken the command, right? This is not a minor plot point. But here's the thing. Three times in that story, we find God specifically articulating the entirety of the command. Not just the command, but my command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the full wordy version of it. Three times. The first time is before there is an Eve, when there's only an Adam, okay? The second time is when God comes looking for Adam and Eve, and he asks them what's happened. And so he says to Eve, what did you do? He says to Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And the third time is in the sentencing of Adam, and in all three, the serpent The woman and Adam, only Adam is the command mentioned again in its full length. Because you ate of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And side note, the Hebrew there, the you is singular. Okay. Now, that might not sound significant to you. But recognize the fact that when the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, look back and talk about the cause of the fall... Recognize the fact that when Paul talks about how we came to us be sinners in Romans chapter 5, recognize the fact that when when, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 contrasts our bodies as corrupt and dying because of the fall and what we have in newness of life and resurrection in Jesus, every time it's Adam, not Eve. Now why is that surprising? Because if we're looking for the first sinner... We'd choose Eve. She eats first. But the one who's pointed to where everything went wrong consistently is Adam. So this is what it says in Romans chapter 5. Through the one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And therefore, through the one man, Jesus Christ, through his obedience, many will be made righteous. Okay? And it says it over and over and over again. There were a handful of rabbis and a few early church fathers who blamed Eve and women generally for being what's wrong with the world. But not the Bible. The Bible blames Adam. God holds Adam responsible. In fact, remember the wording of the story. When it all goes down and Adam and Eve are hiding in the trees, where does God come? Adam, where are you? Adam's who he's looking for. We see a significant responsibility. Not only that, But even when we're talking about a one-flesh relationship, what does it say, right? Adam speaks. He's the only one who speaks over his wife. Eve doesn't doesn't utter a word in the story. I'm sure she talked. I'm just talking about the way the author is writing the story. Doesn't utter a word until the birth of her son, and then she speaks 
She says, I've received a man with the help of the Lord. Okay? But in terms of her relationship with Adam, she doesn't address Adam. We know that she gave the apple to him and he ate, but the words aren't recorded. Okay? The only words we have in Genesis 3 are his, her, her conversation with the serpent. But here's the thing. When Eve is brought to Adam, it's Adam who speaks and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now that's significant because she names Eve after she had just been naming the animals. And the part with animals includes this little sentiment, okay? And anything Adam named them, that was their name, okay? Adam's naming of the animals was a responsibility that came with authority. When he names Eve, he's expressing that same thing. In fact, he likes her so nice, he names her twice. And so first she's just Isha, woman, because she was taken out of man. But after the curse, he names her Eve because she's the mother of all living. There's significance in that. But here's the last one I wanted to point out. Even with this one flesh relationship, what is this pronouncement? Therefore, the man shall leave his mother and father and be clinging to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Where is the onus of the one flesh relationship placed in the book of Genesis? It's placed on the man. Now, I find that one to be especially significant because we never talk about it. Okay? The unity in marriage, according to the Bible as far as I can tell, is on the husband. Okay. And so what Paul is doing here is recognizing not, not anything less than what Jesus has done has restored what went wrong in the fall. What went wrong in the fall? In Genesis chapter 3, speaking to the woman, it says this, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Okay. Now, if I was going to see Paul as a bigot, that's where I would expect him to go. Genesis 3. But he doesn't. If I was to expect this relationship to be overturned in what Jesus had done, I would expect to see it in the curse. But that's not where Paul goes. He goes before that, for Adam was formed first, because Eve was made out of Adam, because Eve was made for Adam. Okay? He stays in Genesis 2. But the recognition here is that husbands are responsible, which, side note, means they will be held accountable. And I actually think that's tremendously good news. We live in a world that, according to the CDC, this year, 50% of homicides of women are committed by their intimate partners. Okay? That's exactly what we would expect, as bad of news as it is when we read Genesis 3. We live in a broken world, and one of the ways it is broken is that people use their strength and their authority and their power to damage and even destroy other people. Okay? But God is aware of and will hold all of that accountable. Just because we live in an unjust world doesn't mean that justice won't be done. Okay? And so, once again, we have to root this idea of the husband as head in the context of husband of head in Christ. In fact, this is a profound way to read the household code. What do we have? Husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and slaves. Do you recognize, and Paul actually applies this directly, but do you recognize that what he says here makes all husbands also wives? Why? Because Christ is the husband of his bride, the church, and that includes the husbands. Do you realize that when he talks to parents and children, he's addressing those parents who are also the children of God? 
And do you recognize, and he does this one explicitly, that when he deals with masters and slaves, he reminds the masters not to be too haughty because they also are servants who will give an account? Do you understand how that changes these things? Because it puts authority in a broader context. What we're talking about here is what's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 when it says that God's whole plan is to put all things in order, all things in subjection to him, and then order him again under the Father. Okay, now, let's talk about equality. Is it truly possible that this relationship could exist, and yet it's still true that men and women are equal in value? Now, first off, Genesis chapter 1 proclaims it in the most profound way that any religion has ever proclaimed it, that male and female are made in the image of God, inherent dignity, called to rule and to reign over the earth, and given the blessing to be fruitful and multiply, okay? All lives are significant because they're all created in God's image, and so that implies equality. But doesn't, doesn't equal equal in value but different in role, isn't that just something that the oppressor says to, to eradicate the complaints of the oppressed? Not necessarily. This word here for submission or subjection, it's used of Jesus. It's used of Jesus multiple times. One of them that I find is significant is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus gets left behind in Jerusalem And while he's there, he gets into a debate with the religious leaders. And his parents, days after losing him, find him in the temple. And they're losing their minds, as you would expect. What are you doing here? And he says nonchalantly as a 12-year-old, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Okay, Jesus at the age of 12 has this self-awareness of who he is and what he's bound for. And he's surprised that his parents don't understand that. But it says, nevertheless, Jesus went home and subjected himself to his parents. The God in flesh submitted to Joseph and Mary. Why? Because they were mom and dad. Okay? But not only that, this is also something we see in the Godhood itself. Okay? In the Trinity itself. The Father and the Son is a relationship of subjection. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, and the Son, quote, according to Jesus, always does the things that please the Father. The Father sent the Son. The Son lives out a life of perfect obedience to the Father. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, when it says that God will put all things under the feet of Jesus, it then says, and Jesus will put himself under the Father, okay? Even his destiny is bound up in this position that he is the Son and not the Father, Does that mean that Jesus is not equally God? Does it mean that he's not of equal value? Okay, is it a position he just inherited because he was born late? No, none of those will satisfy. It's a voluntary position. Now, some have criticized that and gone, but you're talking about something temporary. The economic trinity. Jesus became a man and in that laid down his equality and became a servant. And that's true. We'll look at that in just a second. But it doesn't change the fact that according to the Gospel of John, Jesus was sent by the Father before he was incarnate. We still see this in operation. And it doesn't change the fact that the way the story ends in 1 Corinthians is in that relationship. 
It's not as if he hands everything to Jesus and everything's under Jesus' feet and then he steps under the Father and now that that's finished, they go back to equal. That, that doesn't make any sense of the data. But more importantly, we can't forget that all human relationships are temporary. Okay? That whatever it means to be a parent and a child on earth it means something different in heaven. And we know that explicitly with marriage because Jesus says in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The marriage relationship is a temporary relationship, so that doesn't really remove the observation that we're making. Here's what I'm saying, okay? Yes, as we're going to see, husbands are called to play the Christ role in their marriage. Wives are called to play the church. But it's also appropriate to recognize that wives submitting themselves are playing the Christ role. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 3. Actually, I want chapter 2. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me just point out to you that that is the pinnacle of subjection, that he died in the line of serving his father at his father's command, okay? But notice what it says next. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, what we see here is not, um, not Jesus subjecting himself to the Father because of some sort of inability or weakness or failure. In fact, it leads to his glory. Okay, it is the greatness of Jesus that's pro proclaimed in this role, not the insignificance of Jesus. As Christians, subjection, ordering ourselves under other people, can never, never be an unvaluable affair. Because Jesus did it for us. Because Jesus did it with the Father. Okay? So, all of those things need to be kept in mind. What we see here is a relationship that for the sake of unity has a head and a body that operates uh, with authority and submission, but we haven't exhausted what the text says. Here's the last, and this is the most interesting point in the way that Paul talks about these things. He says men are the head, speaking to the woman, but he doesn't call the men to be the head. He doesn't even call them to be the authorities. He doesn't even see, say, husbands, lead your wives. That's not what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay your life down for her. Now, why is that significant? Because the head-body metaphor is a tremendously common one in the Roman world. We find this relationship of head and body being, described, uh, being used to describe the emperor and the empire. But in all of those texts, it's the body that should love the head. And it's, in all of those texts, it's the body that should sacrifice for the head. Okay. 
Because the head is so important. If the head is lost, all is lost. In fact, just think of the metaphor physically for a second. What does it mean that a, that a head takes a bullet for the body? It means death. Paul is reverse engineering a common understanding in a radical way. When he calls husbands here, not merely to be authorities, not merely to lead, but to love, and not only to love, but to express that love through self-sacrifice, he is challenging our concept of power. He's challenging our concept of authority. He's challenging all the powers and principalities that we know in the world, and he's learned this from Jesus himself. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, says this. He says, you know that the Gentiles lord their authority over one another, but not so among you. Rather, he who desires to be the greatest shall be the least and the servant of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, even the Messiah, even God in the flesh, even Jesus himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What does the head relationship look like when we run it through the gospel? It looks like self-sacrifice for the sake of the body. Okay? And so what we're talking about here on both sides has gone through the profound ringer of what's happened in Jesus Christ. Subjection is an honorable and voluntary and beautiful thing because of Jesus. And authority is transliterated into a new concept of self-sacrifice and service because King Jesus died for us. Okay? It is that relationship that leads to one flesh. It is that relationship that manifests the unity that God desires to have with his people. It reflects who Jesus is as head and the church as body. Now, Paul looks at this whole thing and he finds significant of it, significance in it because it paints a picture. And we've been saying throughout this series that you can't really get away from the fact that the foundational ethic of Christianity is symbolic. We live the way we live because it shows who God is and what he's done. Now, we can still be uncomfortable and go, but why the husband? Why Adam and not Eve? Why did God start with Adam? There are no answers. But the design here is clearly with the intention so that God can say, now you understand me when I say that I'm your husband. Okay. And that is a primary metaphor in the Old Testament and in the New for God's relationship with his people. Okay, the marriage relationship is in shadow what God's relationship is with his people in reality. Recognize that, that when we talk about the marriage we have as the church with Christ, our relationship with God that all marriages are called to point to, recognize that we play the role of the wife. Okay. And we would like to believe that we play the Proverbs 31 wife, the one who's of greater value than rubies to her husband that proclaims honor and value and, and you know, is this beautiful relationship. But there's a, there's a wife in scripture that already has our name written all over it and it's the one in Ezekiel 16. It's the one who's found a foundling, abandoned, 
raised, covered in dirt, washed of blood, and then made beautiful and then uses those adornments for harlotry and prostitution and turns to other things and commits spiritual adultery and worships other gods. In fact, Ezekiel 16 gets pretty graphic. It says, an ass sniffing in the wind because it smells a female has nothing on you, Israel. You smell your lovers from a distance and you run to them. He says, normally in prostitution, it's the prostitute who gets paid, but you pay your lovers extensively. That's the bride that God promises in Ezekiel 16. Nevertheless, I'm going to take you back. That's the bride that he calls, uh, calls Hosea to live out in his life by taking a prostitute named Gomer, and even though she goes back to the life, buying her out of her slavery and bringing her back to himself, because that's the bride that looks like us. And there's a really important point we have to recognize here. Okay. Because the world has fallen, submission is hard, and authority is abused. That's true in all places for anyone who's called to that. And as Christians, we're called to that in a lot of categories, even with government. Read Romans 13. But second, we tend to think, if the authority was better, then I would have no problem submitting. And we lie. Because our husband, the one that the church belongs to, is perfect, self-sacrificing, fully with our interest in mind. And yet, how often do we rebel and resist and run? And so, one of the reasons why these things matter is because if we eradicate these distinctions, we lose another window into understanding the significance of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And I know we live in a world where the mirror is tarnished. What I'm afraid of is using that as an excuse to walk away from the mirror altogether. And I'll remind you of one last thing as we close, that Paul roots this reality both in calling and in possibility in what? What did we see in chapter 5, verse 18? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Can there really be a one flesh relationship that isn't exploitative, that actually works and moves towards greater unity and not more frustration? Yes, because of what Jesus has done and what he's made available to his church in the unity provided by the Holy Spirit. So it's worth pursuing. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask for wisdom. At the end of the day, these words have to mean something. And we've taken the time, and it's helpful and it's healthy to take the time to talk about all the things it doesn't mean. But it, like every time we open your word as Christians, or every time we're confronted with the reality of the God who speaks, the natural response is just that, to respond. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom so, so that we could navigate these things uh, in our expectations for marriage, in our own marriages, I know it's easy to settle for a list of rules, and if you look over the internet, you can probably find them, um, but you've given us something that's different. You've just laid out a, a ground floor, and you know that it'll be expressed differently in different relationships and in different cultures, but it's expressed to your glory, and so it's worth saying.
And I ask that you'd help us to figure those things out for ourselves. And I also recognize, Lord, that this design is not merely symbolic. It's also design. That even if we can't understand why, this is how you've built things. And it's not only to your glory, but to our benefit to figure these things out. And so I ask that you'd help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take some questions and answers. I need just a second to get set up. Here's a nice big one from this morning. I find it hard to reconcile equal in value and different in role with the comparisons between subordination and parent-child relationship. Submission in the latter seems to mean following orders unless it's the case where the husband is not a Christ follower. Further, women today often have equally strong careers, educations, etc., as men and husbands, which seems to create a dissonance with universal mandate of male headship in a truly Christian marriage. If a woman is to acknowledge and subordinate herself to her headship, what does this look like on a practical day-to-day basis? I understand this headship is to be sacrificial, but I'm having trouble understanding what it looks like in today's modern world. Now, this question has quite a few uh, parts of it, and I'm not sure I can untangle um, the meaning in all of it. So let me just make a few clarifications just in case. Um, first off, as we saw tonight, there is a difference between the relationship of parent and child and the relationship of husband and wife. Okay? There's a similarity in that they both involve a concept of subjection, but like we talked about with a child, it's care subordination, specifically and solely for the sake of the child. What we have in marriage and unity subordination is a little bit different. Now, when it goes on here and mentions the fact that many women have similar education and careers, um, sometimes what we see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, like we looked at tonight, or in Colossians, or in 1 Peter 3, when it talks about these relationships, sometimes it's suggested that the reason is because women in the ancient world were relatively less educated, or there was less employment possibilities open to women, and therefore this relationship was inherently circumstantial. Now, like, uh, like I pointed out tonight, none of those reasons are stated in the text. Okay? And although there were some truths of that, there was an entire class of women who were heavily educated. Most women in, in Roman citizens' uh, society level uh, the upper, upper class of Rome had all sorts of education. It was different than the education of men, but it was also very prevalent. Um, with the employment, there is the recognition of that, and sometimes this is suggested, that if we go back to a hunter-gatherer relationship, it makes sense that men have uh, uh, diversified roles to women. That when we're just trying to survive, women having babies and men killing you know, the, the beasts that threaten babies makes sense. But now that we've modernized, we move away from these things. Now, I would suggest there's actually some sense where that is, that, that is true, that the more established a culture and a civilization and a society is, the less these things have clarity and visibility to them. And it also changes the way we work. I pointed this out last week, but I'll point it out again today. If we say a woman's place is in the home, we have to remember that for the majority of human history, that was also the man's place, okay? That the industrialized, uh, industrialization of the modern world that created the factory and took careers outside of the home and put them in other places is just that, a new phenomenon, okay? Uh, and so, so, um, so if we're going to talk about 
um, learning from traditional societies. There's more to learn than I think we would recognize at first. But uh, let's get to the last part of this question because this is really the $60 million question. What does this look like in today's modern world? What does it look like practically? Now, there's a lot of things that I think we can assume this applies that I don't think it necessarily does. Like, let's talk about career, okay? Nothing in this relationship of head and body implies uh, that the, the man has to be the sole breadwinner or even the primary breadwinner of the family, okay? What this is really about is what it means to be a family in unified, and so some of those discussions are going to involve this relationship, uh, but it doesn't necessarily determine um, determine these things. I will say this, that the idea of head involves responsibility. And so, so if there's no food on the table, the man is primarily responsible. In fact, I'll push that even further. If he's underutilizing his wife so she can just sit, home, sit at home and do nothing, then I would say that's bad headship. Leading your wife means recognizing her strengths and gifts and abilities um, but there are going to be occasions where two people having a career might not be positive for the family, okay? And that doesn't mean, therefore, the man should work, but it does mean that's where these relationships of unity and headship are going to play out. Um, now, I printed up something, knowing that this question would be here, um, written by Tim and Kathy Keller. It's in the back on the table. There's enough copies for everyone here tonight, if you're interested. But they uh, lay out it says five. I'm pretty sure there's four. I'm pretty sure I can count to five. There's only four. Uh, four principles that they've used in their marriage as they've tried to walk this out. And it's surprisingly helpful. Some of it is clarifications like we've talked about tonight. Um, but one of the things that she points out is that first, stalemates, as in somebody needs to make the decision, should be relatively rare in this relationship. Okay, Because if the head's desire is to defer to the wife, to serve the body, to lay down his own privileges, and if the wife's desire is to follow her husband's lead, then stalemates should generally be pretty rare. But what if there is? That's always the question people want to know. Who are you, are you saying that the man gets the deciding vote if there's a tie, okay? As rare as it would be, she, she puts it in a way that I think is helpful, which is that the husband will be held accountable for the decision, and that's the way it should be. And she illustrates with the planting of the church that Tim planted in New York, Redeemer. They were living in Philadelphia. They had a relatively good life. Tim was feeling called to it, and his wife was not sure about the decision. And she expressed that, and Tim said to her, well, if you feel that way, we won't go. And she said, oh, no, you're not going to pin this on me. That would be abdicating. You need to make the decision, and you're going to live with the decision. And it's my job to just figure out how to follow you joyfully in this. And I think there's wisdom in that. In fact, generally, I find a lot of wisdom in Kathy Keller as well as, as, well as Tim, but I've put that back there. It presents uh, some principles that I think, uh, I think are helpful. But the words that have been rolling through my mind that I find helpful are responsibility. Okay, so for example, later on, uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing specifically sons, sons of widows, who in this world, remember, are probably also husbands 
and fathers, but specifically sons. And he's talking about widows who the church will support versus widows who should be supported by their own children. But, she, but it emphasizes the sons. You can read it. And this is what it says, that uh, a person who does not provide, or specifically a man who does not provide for his family, is worse than an unbeliever. He speaks very strongly, and he says provision is a responsibility, and it's a primary responsibility, okay? And so um, even if you think you're following Jesus and leaving your children hungry, you're failing in round one of your vocation as husband and father. And so responsibility, I think, is a helpful word here. I think initiation is a helpful word here, but none of this stuff means only responsible or only initiator. Take responsibility, for example. One of the ways we cannot understand this concept is that husbands are leaders and women have no leadership whatsoever, okay? That husbands are leaders and women are servants or whatever the other half would be. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it speaks of a woman and applauds a woman who rules her household well, okay? And the word for ruling household is this combo word, oiko despota, okay? It's where we get the word despot for. A despotic ruler is a dictator, it's a pretty strong expression of authority. And so women are, are and I, I don't love this metaphor, but it will serve. If anything, they're vice presidents to the president, okay? It's, it's a different form of leadership. It's a lesser form of leadership. It's not, not a form of leadership. And I'd say the same thing about initiation, okay? Take the employer-employee relationship. It's different. We should keep saying that. It's not the same thing. But... If an employer feels like he has to do the finances because he's the boss, I would say there's a misunderstanding of how this thing works, okay? He wants somebody who knows what he's doing. That's what it looks like to lead well. In the same way, uh, in the same way, employees who show initiative, that's, that's a fine thing. What I'm saying, what I'm talking about is that if the husband is to be responsible, that means that he is thoughtfully considering where his family should be going and taking the initiative to get them there. Now, uh, as you'll see in Kathy Keller's uh, um, paper, and uh, then we'll move on, she also points out that this doesn't look like tacit and silent agreement from the wife, that what it means to be a strong helper implies sharing your perspective, your abilities, your strengths, all of those things, okay? Uh, and, And I would just once again say, where is that not, in, in any appropriate expression of authority and subordination, where is that not a part of the game, okay? Once again, if, if a boss is, is trying to figure out how to get somewhere financially, does he leave his finance guy out of it? You know, there are things that my wife is particularly, particularly knowledgeable about, and I rely on that knowledge, okay? Um, I have no idea uh, how to take care of my health. My wife is an encyclopedia of knowledge on those things, okay? And so I don't just make health decisions without consulting her, um, especially for our children, because then I'd really be in trouble. Okay, let's see what else we got here. I'm wondering if this text was primarily addressing the role of women in the context of a patriarchal society in a way that would help the listeners receive the concept of mutual subjugation. It seems that men and women are directed to subject themselves to one another. Now this is actually a worthwhile point. You may remember that before we get to verse 22, we have verse 21 that says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And so some have argued that that speaks of a mutual submission. Now, there are other places in the New Testament that do talk about principles of humility or mutual deference. If you read the verses in Philippians 2 before that whole passage, that's clearly what it says. Don't think about your own needs, but also consider the needs of others. So that principle is true, but there's a, there's a difficulty in reading it that way in Ephesians. Okay? Consider two sentences with me. The mouse on the desk is eating cheese, and the mouse on the desk is caught in a trap. Or, sorry, that won't work. The mouse on the desk is broken. There we go, okay? When I say the mouse on the desk, you have to use what I'll call delayed definition. You don't know which mouse I'm talking about until the following context, right? And so when I add the context of eating cheese, you go, oh, he's talking about the animal. Or if I say broken, you assume that I'm talking about the device we use next to a keyboard, Okay? In the same way, when we read this passage, he says, submit yourselves to one another's, but what follows is examples of that submission, and they're all one-directional. And so is there a sense where parents should defer to their children? Yes, but they don't submit to their children in the same way children should submit to them. Is there a way that masters should submit to their servants? Yes, but not in the same way, okay? And so if we really want the context to determine what Paul means here, then what he means is played out in this way. Now, the concept of patriarchy is a difficult one, and not just because that's a heated and loaded term. Also, because many people would read the Old Testament scriptures and see, in the negative sense, that is a patriarchal society. Okay? Now, the number one Hebrew text scholar okay, on the book of Deuteronomy, which is a relatively important book for understanding the relationships between men and women in, in Israel. He says that he doesn't agree with the term patriarchy. He prefers patricentricity. Okay? The husbands or the fathers or the men are at the hub of the household. And that radiates out into the household. But when you look at, um, at the role that the husband or the father was to play, uh, look, for example, at Job when he's basically declaring his innocence and he lays out how he's behaved ethically and he calls himself a protector of widows and a father to the fatherless. When it looks at what it means to be a father, it has the same flavor that we're talking about. It's for the sake of the family and not because they have the position of, of privilege and posture. Now, does that mean there wasn't patriarchal expression or there wasn't abuse in the system? Of course there was. The Bible is full of those things. But we have to watch out for, for this term because, um, because it's used so broadly. Once again, precision, I think, is essential. And so if you're saying a place that treats women like chattel, which is clearly a culture that we encounter in some places in the world, and your label for that is patriarchy, you can't necessarily apply it to the culture of the Bible, and you definitely can't apply it to the relationship we're talking about tonight. If you mean patriarchy means that there's a significant difference between men and women, then I'm going to have to agree and say, yeah, what we're talking about tonight is patriarchal. But it's hard to be precise in such a loaded and overused term. Okay? Um, and then, like I said, the, the other problem I have is that um, Paul doesn't seem to give two figs about culture for determining his ethical principles. The New Testament is full of counterculture, and I'll just give you one example. Judaism, he holds parallel to the relationships between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, in Galatians 3.28, which is a profound statement. What he says is, in Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, 
slave nor free, male and female. Intriguingly, he says and in the last one. Can you guess why? Because he's referring to Genesis 127. And so he leaves it the same way. Okay. But how does he handle those who demand, yeah, that's true, but culturally we'd like them to be circumcised with extreme reaction to the degree that the apostle Peter he calls out for maintaining dinner distance from Gentiles like a good Jew, right? And so he's totally capable of going against the grain of culture. Read the book of Acts and watch, watch the line he treads between utilizing Roman culture and pressing against it. It's, it's pretty profound. It's, it's not easy to just assume. Uh, and then second, every time he talks about these things, he doesn't look at culture. He doesn't even say, so it's more understandable to our times. He goes back to Genesis every time. Okay. And so that seems significant uh, to me, especially in this paradigm we've seen of the fact that these things seem to have an aspect of design that the whole purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 has a lot to do with relationships between men and women in gender and in sexuality. Okay, sometimes it's hard to tell with also's which they're attached to. So I'm going to try and, sorry, uh, I'm going to try and attack this on its own. Also, is it primarily a spiritual headship and a financial headship? If this is related to the last question, and I'll assume that it is, uh, the question is, are we basically saying that husbands are responsible to pastor their wives? And, and I would say, actually, there seems to be a correlation between those two things because the way that the church is personified is like a household. It's like a family. And so even the, the role of pastor in the church, which Paul maintains is to be for men, it seems to be for similar reasons. Okay? Paul doesn't have a lot to say about if your boss at work is a woman or a man or if your president is a woman or a man, or any of those things. Okay? The two places the New Testament focuses on is the family of Christians and then the church as a family. Um, and so I think there's a significance here. And like I said, I want to reiterate that, um, that although a husband is responsible for providing for his family, that doesn't mean he needs to be the sole provider um, uh, or that he's even the one making the most money. See, one of the problems with this is, is that um, if we treat this stuff primarily as identity, then our identity is threatened by anything that seems abnormal. I was reading a book all afternoon, which was not a good book, unfortunately, um, but it was interviewing a bunch of women talking about singleness, and all of them were uh, expecting to get married by 25 and were now approaching their 30s and just processing life through this window. And over and over again, they were talking about the fact that they felt like the men around them were intimidated by their education or by their success and career. I have no reason to doubt that that's not true. Okay? Um, but it shouldn't be part of what we're talking about here. Um, that if this is really about role, and this is something that's different between a traditional society and a post-technological society that I think is worth pointing out. Most social roles in the ancient world were ascribed you were born into them, okay? Most roles in our world have to do with merit and earning. And there's values in that, okay? It means what, that we're more likely to avoid somebody who doesn't deserve their position, okay? But if you were a father in the ancient world, whether you 
you know, we're smart enough to have kids or dumb enough not to have kids, right? It doesn't really change the fact that you're the father. And even when it comes to the tribal level or even at the broader cultural level, we have like a blood monarchy. Um, and uh, we have to recognize um, that when we go about things primarily in merit, one of the things it does is it creates and cultivates tremendous insecurity in terms of identity. Because now we wonder if we're good enough to be a son of this father. Now we wonder, enough, wonder if we're man enough to be a husband or if we've done enough as a wife. If you don't believe me, just read mom blogs, okay? We have a huge identity crisis in our world and this, this emphasis on merit is part of the problem, okay? Think of me as a pastor. There are requirements, character requirements that are scripturally made, but our relationship is primarily ascribed. It's just given. I have had people who have been in this church for less than a month come and tell me their deepest secrets. Why? Because I'm their pastor. And they felt like I was the one they needed to tell. Okay? Is that because I have the right degrees on the wall? Is that because I've earned a right to speak into their life? No, it's because they know what a pastor should be, and that's what they expect of me. Now, is there problems with that? Absolutely. Okay? But but there's also advantages, okay? There's also advantages. Okay, this is a four part. I'm not sure I can get it all on the screen in order, but we will try. I think I need to start at the bottom. Let's see if that's right. Yes, good. Oh, it came so close. It's all right, you can see the numbers. What I still struggle with about husbands love your wives, lay down your lives, is that it seems to make room for the husbands making all the decisions. I've seen this lead to bad environments in a marriage. The husband can justify any of their actions by saying they were doing it out of love. And they are the ones deciding what love and submission are. This is not biblical on his part, but how can the church proactively encounter instead of advertently defending this behavior? Thank you so much for that question. One of the things we talked about earlier is that authority is rightly used when it's held accountable by other authority systems. Okay. In fact, it's Peter who intentionally recognizes that wives are weaker vessels, which for the more feminist-oriented of you may make you mad, but in the context, what he's addressing is spousal abuse. And he's, he's pointing out the fact that husbands, husbands will be held accountable and that their wives are spiritually co-heirs in the Lord, even though they're weaker vessels. Um, and uh, and here's, here's the point, okay? Because of the modern concept of privacy and how perpetuated it is, there's a tendency in spousal abuse in these things to look the other way. Okay, so let's talk about them in a few different levels. And I know this is more than spousal abuse, but since it brought it up. Uh, one, what it looks like to be a strong helpmeet as a woman if, you're, if your husband is abusing you is to call the cops. Okay, that's not just in your best interest, it's in your husband's best interest. Okay, um, second, the church has to do a better job of holding men accountable to be these types of husbands. And that begins with exemplifying and, and teaching this role, uh, but it also involves in publicly addressing, or uh, when these things break out in publicly incorrectly addressing them. Okay, it involves confrontation. Um, 
and and then the the other thing is um, I think I think there's a, a sense where they're right. Even it's not even I'm the head, so submit to me. But this is what's loving. I know what's best. Um, so the first thing the first thing you're going to have to deal with is that the the New Testament holds these two ideas as related they are separate in terms of your responsibility. Okay. In other words, a marriage covenant is primarily vertical before it's horizontal. Okay. And so, for example, Peter says that they're to submit themselves to their non-Christian husbands. Now, like I said, that's going to have natural limits. There are times where the, the uh, right thing to do with your husband is to obey the Lord instead, but the way you obey is going to be not rebellious, but submissive. It's going to say, I understand why you're saying this, but like, like the apostles in Acts chapter 4, you tell me whether it's right to obey God rather, or men rather than God, but as for us, we cannot help but say, okay? Um, and so, so there's, there's places in here, and there's even minefields that we have to watch out for, but there's a way to rebel submissively. I believe this with government as well, okay, because I see it played out with the apostles. Government says, stop talking about Jesus, and they say no, but the way they say no is not with Molotov cocktails, right? It's not with revolution. The way they say no isn't even spitting in the cops' faces they're arrested, Okay. The way they say no means they sit in prison praising Jesus. There's differences here. Okay. Um, and so, so there's an attitude that's involved. Um, and I really think part of the reason we struggle so greatly with this, and I don't know, how can we measure spousal abuse in the, in the 14th century? We can't, right? So maybe I'm wrong. But it wouldn't surprise me if these things are worse because our community is so fragmented. Because society has so much privacy and distance and autonomy. Okay. The truth is, if you lived in a village of 130 people a thousand years ago and you heard somebody being attacked, you would come into the streets and deal with it because you know who's being attacked. Because they're your neighbors of your 130 town. There's something significant about that video. Do you remember the videos of the woman who was being beaten to death and nobody called the cops? I don't think that's just a human phenomenon. I think that's a modern phenomenon. And so especially in the church that's called to be a community of love and accountability, um, these things need to be not, uh, not hushed up, not kept quiet, totally dealt with. Side note, personally, I'm very swift to call the cops. And I think that's the right way to be. I think God has given us government for a reason. And I think if crimes are being committed, there's cleanup that follows after that that involves Jesus. But we don't defer involving the government just because somebody's known to be a Christian. And that's, that's true on all things, okay? Um, prison can be a good place for reformation. You spoke of wives acting in a Christ-like way because of their subjection to their husband. Does this not go the other way as well? What I mean is the woman is subject to the man's will as man is to Christ and Christ is to God, yet man, in the command for him to lovingly sacrifice, is just as subjugated to the woman's needs as God gave of his own will to fill the need of the people. 
slash the church. Um, in a sense, yes, uh, I think this is, is right, that they're both called to be like Christ, but I think it's hard to push this into they're both called to be like Christ in the exact same way. I think in one sense there's probably a lot more overlap than there should be difference. Um, but I don't think you can eradicate, uh, I don't think you can eradicate the differences. And so, um, so like I said, headship involves leadership. Um, and so that leadership should be other-oriented for the sake of the other. That leadership should be sacrificed. But it doesn't remove the leadership aspect of it. Okay? And, uh, and so, so in practice, I'll tell you what this looks like. It means a good deal of the time, the things that I want, I lay down for my wife. In fact, I found it to be a relatively joyful proposition something that I enjoy to do. That if I have the opportunity to defer, to make my wife happy, why wouldn't I do that? Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, and if you've ever tried it, you know that there's a truth to that. There's a benefit to that. Um, but I'm also afraid of, um, of neglecting the leadership that I owe my wife. Okay? Uh, of of forsaking my responsibility as if it was deferring, okay? And the truth is, um, Paul doesn't call wives to love their husbands. He does in another place. He encourages the older women to treat their, the younger women to love their husbands specifically. Um, but he puts the emphasis different here um, and I assume that's because there's a difference. And the difference isn't margin to margin. It's, it's not black and white. Um, but it's a difference of orientation. It's a difference of center. Um, and it's a difference of, um, of purpose. And so, so here's the thing. This, this is what I would suggest. I think this is the way generally obedience to the word of God looks like. We might wish that there was a full description of these things, but I think it makes sense that there's not. Because what we're reading here can operate in any time and in any culture. Now, granted, in our time and culture, it's harder to figure out than other times. Okay? Um, but the advantage is that we don't just settle for stereotypes and try and cram people or cultures through them. Okay? Each and every couple you know is made up of two very different people. Not just different from one another, but different from you and your spouse, or different from the other spouses you know. All of those things, I think, play into this. But here's the way obedience works with the Word of God. It's very rarely just a box that you tick. Okay? Anything God's Word calls us to involves a whole bunch of things, and the way obedience looks like is, what does this look like right now? What does this look like next? How can I envision this and then taking a step in that direction? And a lot of times you find that your first efforts at obedience are relatively shadow, or shallow and they lead to deeper expressions of it. What I would encourage anyone in this room who desires to follow the pattern that we've laid out tonight to do is to have a frank conversation of a place where this could play out or a place where it's clearly not playing out. And I'm not going to try and list off all of the options because you have no idea how capable we are of assuming because my issue wasn't brought up, it's not an issue. Okay? Or feeling like, well, since I've dealt with that, I don't have to deal with anything else. That's just not the way the Lord works in our life. I'm not your conscience. 
You have the Holy Spirit. What this looks like, first and foremost, it should be this question. Is this what the Bible teaches? And then this question. Am I going to obey what the Bible says? And then, then I'm not so concerned about what follows after. Because what follows after, like I said, should begin with, okay, what could this look like? What does this look like now? What's one way that I can express this? I think there's enough content here to give multiple answers to any person. Uh, And that's enough for me. Because the truth is, if I gave you a list of 100 things, how long is it going to take you to clear the 100? Okay. How long till you lose the list or forget? That's just not the way life works. And it's not the way God does either. But I think we've seen tonight that if these things are bound to the image of God and if they're bound to the story, a, a creative parable of the story of the gospel, then not only can we do this in a beautiful and fulfilling way, but also it's worth doing. Okay. So we'll finish there. Let me pray for us. God, I know that these things are prone to abuse. But I also know that no order, no structure, no organization, no talk, no conversation is also prone to abuse. And sometimes that's worse because it remains hidden or misunderstood. And I just ask, Lord, that we would just weigh weigh our hearts and say, if we knew that this was God's plan, would we obey it? that we would weigh the scripture and we would say, are we sure that this is what the Bible teaches? And then we would weigh our application, our lives, and say, what does it look like to to live like this? And I thank you, Lord, that despite my deficiencies or even my errors, uh, that uh, you are faithful to navigate and teach your people. And that's despite the fact that sometimes we don't have good teachers. It's despite the fact that sometimes we're terribly blind. It's despite the fact that sometimes we kick against the goads like Paul and we're stubborn. But he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be proactively pursuing a relationship with you and an expression. If not right now, tonight, submission to our husbands or to government or anything else, but just submission to Jesus. I think everything else will take care of itself. I pray that you'd help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.